X-Ray. It's the Beer Runner Show. Podcast important on X-Ray FM and available anywhere on your favorite podcast service. We join you once again under the canopy of the giant oak tree with the falling acorns and the crazy squirrels uh, in beautiful southeast Portland. I am Patrick Emerson. I'm a professor of economics at Oregon State University and your host. <laughs> joining me as always, my special guest, <laughs> Jeff Howard, author of the forthcoming Beer Bible, second edition out September 28th. Yes, indeed. Find it everywhere, starting to get but very, especially your local independent bookseller. That's right. It's trying to get very close to that, and we, I'm supposed to be doing a big book tour, but this damn COVID, I don't know if I'm actually going to go anywhere. Really? But. Is Delta I maybe mean, screwing everything? We're, we're, we're charging ahead like it's going to happen, but I don't know. You we'll should. see. You should charge ahead. I, I will. By the way, uh, last week we talked about the best breweries in Portland. We did. And one of those breweries we mentioned was Gigantic Brewing. Yes. And on September 23rd, a oh. Thursday, if you're in Portland, Oregon, you can come down to the brewery at, I believe, 7 p.m., 6.30, 6, somewhere in the evening. <laughs> uh, and just, just show up at 5. Yeah, and start yeah, grab a beer. By the eventually, Jeff that's, will show up. That's perfect. Uh, that will be the international book tour launch. I'm for, coming to that. All right, I expect to see you there because that's the least effort it, on my part. It's it's like a it's a mile away, and you know who's going to be there with me, appearing uh, one night only. Van Havoc. Van Havoc. Nice. Yeah, it'll be that's great. worth the price of admission. Totally. Yeah, uh, as I've always said as a writer, uh, make sure you quote in interesting people and people think you're a great writer. So I will appear with Van Havoc and people will think I'm a genius. Yeah, just turn the mic over to him and yeah. <laughs> keep your mouth shut. That's best, the best <laughs> my best advice. Hey, by the way, uh, and last last week people, uh, I've, I've mentioned, I'm going to mention this again because I'm probably going to cough at some point. Uh, I still have my head cold, even a week later. Even a week later? Even a week later, my head cold still exists. Yeah, and you're still claiming that you're all healthy and robust. <laughs> no, no. This is this is like going to the gym for my immune system, man. Like, yeah. imagine, it, if you think of the immune system as like the muscles, like imagine the the, the the bulging muscle. I'm like Arnold Schwarzenegger of immune systems. Maybe you should go to the doctor, you know, check out that you're not full of cancer. I mean. <laughs> Thanks. That's a, that's a lovely thought. <laughs> but uh, the thing is, now, having said that, uh, on the podcast, if you do, uh, yeah, I'll never live it down. Feel, yeah. I'll feel really horrible. You'll feel really bad. Um, I was going to mention, because I'm the benefactor of some of the voluminous amounts of beer you receive yeah. for free. Uh, That's why I know you're healthy, because beer is a preservative, and it's pickling you. <laughs> yeah exactly well i drink beer because it's full of antioxidants yes i think that's right and so and it's, nutrients it's fighting off everything else yeah exactly that's all i need yeah I mean, everything you need to live a healthy life is in a can of beer <laughs> speaking of which so you give me uh from time to time some of the beer you get uh which i appreciate thank you certainly and i just mentioned completely randomly that last night i grabbed a good word italian pills ah good word i think is a brewery in georgia georgia atlanta or decatur or somewhere yeah. uh, i wish i knew i wish i had the can in front of me because i also don't remember the name, <laughs> the name of the, the beer but it was a dry hopped italian pilsner it was fantastic awesome so for those of you in I georgia had that one yet. and and i think you have it because good word did a collab with a local brewery that I can't remember either, which the collab was good as well. But 
Duluth, Georgia, which Duluth, is Duluth. I had Decatur. I, I kind of uh, knew yeah, it was a D. Exactly, Decatur makes sense. D- who knew there was a Duluth in Georgia? I did I, not know that. I don't know. I uh, I did not know that, and I don't know where it is. Yeah, I know where Dul- I've been to Duluth, Minnesota. But do you remember what the, who the collab was? They did a Good Word and uh, somebody Heater Allen or something like that, right? I do not know. Uh, okay, no, <laughs> you just give me the beer. Uh, yeah. Anyway, uh, they have a really really nice Italian pills. Excellent. So go for it. That's one of my. When it's done well, it's one of my favorite styles, and it's not done well that often. So, well, I couldn't. Yeah, I couldn't claim. I couldn't give you any sense of how authentic it was, but I could just tell you that it's uh, darn tasty. That's how you know it's done well if it's darn tasty. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Uh, what else? How are you doing? Speaking of, uh, well, in good health, <laughs> in the sunshine, sunshiny day in Portland. Somebody's backing up in the neighborhood. I don't know if you can pick <laughs> Once that again, up. again, a week later, we're back here, and there's still people backing up with their little beepity beeps. Yeah, that's a we were out Last week, we had a helicopters. We had your neighbor taking in their recycling or whatever. <laughs> it's true. I'm doing all right. How are you doing? Well, other than my head cold that won't go away. That's right. That's right. Really, go to the doctor. I'm, I'm you know. <laughs> I got to go off again. I think the other problem is when I'm out, out here in nature, it tickles my throat. Yeah, it's true. Uh, no, I'm doing good. I'm doing good. It's summertime. I'm in the middle of my, uh, from June 15th to September 15th, I'm not on contract at Oregon State University. So that means it's time to catch up on everything else and things are going pretty well. I'm getting ready, gearing up for a trip to Maine. Nice. So we're going to, I'm going to, because otherwise I will be railed upon by you for months and months. I'm going to make sure I stop at the main beer company. You know what's going to happen on uh, November 22nd? No, I do not. I will be appearing one night only at the main beer company. Oh, that's awesome. Really? For the book tour? Absolutely. Oh, that's fantastic. COVID COVID willing. All right. Well, I'll go check it out for you. I'll go, I'll go like scout it out, like make sure. They're all ready for you. You should do it. It's a it's a beautiful tasting room. Uh, and you gotta go. I drove. See, so this is why I'm saying because uh, I was there two years ago and I drove right by. I know. And I told Jeff, "Hey, I saw the main beer company, but we didn't stop because they're my kids, and they were gonna be mad if we stopped." But I'm gonna go without kids this time. Like so you can go without kids. All I, I only have to worry about my wife, and she'll she'll hang. She'll she'll she can survive She's nice that. About, she's nice about this. You can tell her it's one of the best breweries in North America, and you have to stop. Uh, and that will not impress her even the slightest. I was about to say, <laughs> I'm not sure that's going to help, but <laughs> it's something you can do. Uh, well, so uh, today's show, we're going to try something new. Over on his blog, Jeff has an ongoing series called Making of a Classic, which investigates why certain beers have become world standards over the decades. And we've talked for a while about how to translate this into pod. And so today, we're going to do it. They contain, these makings of a classic contain a bit of history, a bit of ethnography. Ethnography. Ethnography, thank you. I know you're not, you're, that's part of the social sciences you're not concerned with. Let me help you out. Is there data? (laughs) Uh, There are big data. Can we, can we crunch it? Can I get a standard deviation? Uh, And often a bit of technology. (laughs) By the way, this, I should have, I should have, uh, I should have, um, uh, uh, refresh my knowledge of the student's tea distribu- distribution for today's podcast. So there's a little hint before I read the next sentence. Right. We're going to kick things off today with a beer you're all familiar with, Guinness Draft. It seems as unchanging as it is ubiquitous, yet it has gone through tremendous change since its early origins in the start of the 19th century. As a special treat, we will also have the voice of the man who created the final and current version of the beer. 
All that soon, but first, the news. Oregonian recently published a list of all Oregon restaurants, bars, food carts, drink businesses, and drink businesses receiving money from the Restaurant Revitalization Fund doled out by the Small Business Administration, which is a real mouthful. Who wrote this script? Uh, in total, 2,336 2, businesses received funds. This is in Oregon, remember? And of those, 46 were breweries. Uh, which was fascinating. We, our, our friend Zach Vestal from yes. uh, Uniform Brewing and Ubrew, uh, tipped us off to this. So I, I, I don't know if you went over and scanned it, but I did. I did not. And I, and I did a search to see uh, which breweries received money. It was interesting because they, they, they were, uh, they received radically different amounts of money. And one thing it doesn't show you is why. What you know what, what, why, why would you receive, for example, uh, if you're Cascade Brewing, uh, two million dollars. Or, uh, and I'm, I'm, I'm going way off script now, uh, the one that received the least was Hillsborough's Vertigo, which took in 4700 So I'm sure you, I'm sure it was, it was based on actual costs and stuff, but um, um, and not, not so clear. Uh, going back to the script, uh, Freem also took in $1.5 million. Most far less, however... Uh, including the Vertigo information. If you'd like to see the database search, did your favorite Oregon restaurant win pandemic relief money at the Oregonians website? So it's interesting. Um, and I don't, I really have no idea how to interpret it. And there you go. But it was, it was, yeah, it was interesting. Uh, do you have, do you, is this a loan or a grant? It's a grant. It's a grant. Yeah. Free money, baby. Free, exactly. Free money. Oh, good and job I, for those who got it. But yeah, I'd be interested to know how they, what the criteria were and and uh, also what the conditionality was. Yeah. Is it, and, is it one of these where you had to like promise you weren't going to fire anybody? Or, I yeah. think that was something different because yeah, I, I think, think, so that, I think that's the PPP, wasn't yeah, it? Yeah. yeah. Uh, so there were, yeah, there were different pots. So it's interesting. It's kind of interesting. I mean, at some point we'll, somebody will write a paper and describe how all this money was disbursed and who got it and why, and we'll understand these numbers more. But anyway, I was sort of curious and uh, go check out if you're interested in seeing if your favorite brewery got any money from the government. Right. Uh, second bit of news, recent violent weather floods in Europe, heat dome over the Pacific Northwest may affect the hop crop. And in an alarming development, the variety most susceptible to heat is citra. Ooh, dun, I did dun, not dun. know this. Yeah. Wow. It's pretty clear that citra was particularly susceptible to the heat. Pretty broad damage, and while the mature fields might recover, the babies will likely suffer. Uh, Jim Solberg at Indie Hops in Oregon told Stan Hieronymus. This is a quote. Uh, Cascades are also in jeopardy. Yeah. So it's apparently early maturing hops, and I'm not—I'm uh, not enough of an so agronomist. Hit right at the wrong time for them. Exactly, their little, their little whatever they were were all tender. And yeah, well, if roasted. my if my garden is any indication, yeah, some stuff just got clobbered by that heat dome. Yeah, 116 degrees will do it. Turns out, <laughs> yeah, for some plants. <laughs> Uh, wow. So it could be a really bad citrus year, huh? Could what be. are all the IPA guys going to do? Yeah. So this is one of those things in the in the uh, beer world, you can have a contract with a hop grower. And if you have a contract, uh, they have to deliver the hops that you're contracted for if, you know, 
if, if the whole crop is is destroyed, obviously they can't do that. But you're in the line first, uh, as opposed to buying on the spot market. And many American breweries have shifted to go on the spot market because there are so many hops uh, available now that they find that it's easier to get them on a spot market and it gives them more flexibility when they're brewing all these one-offs. Well, this might be a year in which the breweries who have big citra contracts are feeling pretty happy about themselves. So, interesting. Yeah, that's a good point. <laughs> Very good. <laughs> yeah, and that's and that's uh, you know, that's the problem with being a really small craft brewer is that you don't typically write forward contracts for it. You just buy it on the spot market, and so yeah. you're susceptible to these big price fluctuations. Yeah, yeah. On the other hand, you're probably nimble, so that okay, citra hops are expensive. We're going to shift and try out this other hop. So you know, it's true, and uh, there are a lot of hops out there, and you know, as long as your flagship isn't an all citra. You can probably figure something out. By the way, is there a good substitute for Citra? Uh, I don't think there's a great substitute. Yeah. It's kind I mean, of it, a, It's pretty distinctive. And it's so ubiquitous now. So. Yeah. All right. Well. Uh, and and it, it is also one of those great hops that doesn't kick off a lot of weird off flavors to some palates. It's right. pretty pure. Right. Which I think there's a trade-off if you don't have something that, that true. Yeah. Yeah. Good point. Good point. Okay, well, shall we get into the uh, the main topic of the pod today, which is Guinness Draft? Yeah. And by the way, I just want to say, before we even get started, uh, the kind of zeitgeist has faded a bit. Don't you think? Like in the 1980s, 90s, like the Irish pub was sort of the thing. It was ubiquitous. Guinness was kind of really popular. And I feel like part of what craft beer has done is, is faded Guinness slightly, so... I just want to sort of throw that out there. Is that do you, do you think the same? Do you think that's true? Yeah, I definitely think that's true. Uh, the the ubiquity of, of uh, the Irish pub is not limited to the United States. You you know you see it everywhere yeah. oh, you yeah, go in yeah. the world, and uh, so that's probably helpful. You know, if you're in another country where craft beer hasn't been quite as successful, it's probably still a good thing. But no, I think you're totally right. And uh, you know, having been associated with the Guinness Brewery now for five or six years uh, through my blog. That's right. I suppose that we should make that disclaimer. That's true. Outset. They are my they they are are a sponsor. sponsor of you and your blog. And one of the reasons <laughs> we're going to talk about them and I'm, why I have this great... And too bad the beer is... <laughs> <laughs> going to have to bleep that. Yeah, that's, that's everybody, right? <laughs> uh, yeah, one of the reasons we have this great uh, audio is because the brewer, the brewery flew me out to meet Michael Ash, who I'm going to talk about later. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, so, yeah, they've been a they've been a great partner uh, with me. But uh, to your point, looping back around, one thing I was going to say is uh, the yeah Guinness has definitely I've I've now been aware of the the challenges associated with running a brand that is now. Uh, uh, over 200 years old. Yeah, I'm selling, yeah. trying to sell a beer that's over 200 years old. Um, also, there's some real strengths. And uh, the in the United States, Guinness has actually done way better than most legacy brands. Oh, really? Yeah. So it, it's actually that's hanging good. in there well. Yeah. I think because it has this this uniqueness that you know if you're if you're a Budweiser, it's it's fairly interchangeable with right. other brands. Whereas yeah. Guinness Stout is Guinness Stout. Guinness Stout is Guinness Stout. Yeah. Good uh, point. You know, you still you still have all this association with Ireland and St. Patrick's day. And it's, uh, so many Americans claim, claim some lineage to Ireland. Um, mm-hmm. it's, a, it's a country of 5 million people. And yet, you know, 150 million Americans call themselves Irish. So I don't know. <laughs> that's, that's a, it's a good, it's a good thing if you're the, 
the the main uh, iconic brand of uh, of a of a uh, country so many of us trace our roots back to. So, well, why don't you start by telling us from whence it came? Yeah. Uh, when are we gonna? We we have cans here. Should I was we? About to say maybe that's a good moment to actually crack one open. Yeah, because what we're gonna talk about Guinness is actually not one beer, but what we're gonna talk about is Guinness Draft, the one right. that you get in the can and you get the pub, uh, the the classic pub drink. Yeah. So I think we should start with the classic pub yeah. drink. So I went and got the canned version of the Guinness Draft, which includes the little nitrogen widget, which we're going to get into in great detail later. Yes, that's the kind of the big the big point of what we're going to talk about. But I point that out because you're about to hear the that's unique right. sound of a can with a nitrogen widget being opened. As it says on the can, nitrogenated for smoothness. For smoothness. So here we go. Gotta go quick because she's foaming. And then we are, uh, as we decant, uh, of course, everyone, I think, listening to this podcast uh, or radio show is probably aware of the incredibly famous Guinness Surge. Uh, and this is 100% uh, an invention of the Guinness Brewing Company, Guinness Brewery. And I have to say, you know, this little nitrogen widget works pretty well. It, like, I mean, you're getting that effect here. It's amazing. In the canned beer. So we can, while we're... While we're enjoying this, you gave, so, you gave yours a little twirl. I, that that was unintentional. <laughs> so like it, it appears that the the bubbles are going down rather than up. Right. You know what this optical illusion? You know what's happening in this optical illusion? I don't tell me, professor. Isn't this fascinating? Yes, professor. So what happens is uh, the uh, the bubbles are lighter, uh-huh. and so they're driven to the outside of the glass uh-huh. in a convective. Right, in a convective right, right. thing. So the ones that we're seeing are actually the ones on the outside. And as they push down, they're being pushed down by the, the beer goes up the and then it, yeah. yeah. So you get this convective thing. Nice. Uh, and, and of course you uh, appropriately, you're supposed to allow the glass uh, to settle. You mm-hmm. shouldn't be drinking the beer when it's, when it's surging. Mm-hmm. Mine is now settled and I have this beautiful thick one inch creamy. Yeah. Head. Yours, yours looks better than mine. You did a better pouring right, job yeah, than mine, I did. I, yeah, of course. Uh, no question about that. <laughs> when you do the perfect pour, and I think it's easier to do it from a tap than it is from a can. Uh, I was listening to uh, Michael Ash uh, mm-hmm. as I was preparing these clips, and he said that uh, in the brewery they said that it should be three eighths, oh, three, uh, uh, the width of a cleric's collar. <laughs> Which mine is much bigger than that. That's about the most Irish thing ever. Exactly. (laughs) (laughs) So it's beautifully roasty on the nose. Mm. That classic roasty with a slight hint of um, tart. You know, that's how I get in my nose. Yes, the tart. Oh, the tart. We may have to talk about the tart. Uh, uh, And the head, it does create a head. Nitrogen creates an insane head. Yeah. It's unlike any other head. I'm getting some wind shear here. Sorry, everybody. Not on my, not on my beautiful mic. I'm sure. I don't have my headphones on, so I have no idea. You're, I'm sure yours is much worse than mine. <laughs> it's all exposed to the atmosphere. It's a really uh, quite robust flavor, and you know, for th- this this beer was uh, first released to the public in in this form in 1959. So you know, for for decades and decades, if you wanted an ale, if you wanted anything in the United States other than a mass market lager the only thing you had access to really was guinness guinness was craft beer for decades before craft beer existed uh what do you know what uh 
what the ABV is in this, the American version? I think it's 4.2. I, this is the same. This is the beer that, this is actually brewed at St. James Gate, the yep. beer that we get here. Uh, so Guinness Draft is, Guinness Draft is Guinness Draft is Guinness Draft. And I think it's 4.2. So they don't, uh, they don't increase it for export. No. Nope. Yeah. So that's what's so nice is it's such a rich, creamy, full, robust, and it's just a light, but underneath it's really a light, sessionable beer. Yeah, I remember people used to, used to say, uh, as craft beer was just getting going, you used to hear people say, oh, Guinness, that's an incredibly strong beer. That's like, they would go on and on and on about it. It's actually way lighter than a Budweiser, uh, but it's just the flavor. It, the flavor is so intense, people assumed that it was a very strong beer. Of course, it doesn't taste strong for modern palates, but... Um, uh, By the way, Jeff, if beer. you were wondering how to pour it appropriately, they have detailed instructions on the can. They say, uh, uh, to best enjoy, open the can and wait for a moment for the nitrogen to release, which I did. Pour into the glass tilted at 45 degrees, which I did. Watch the surge, settle, and then enjoy. Yeah, we did all of which that. Which I did. We did all of that, yeah. but uh, I, I would need to practice a little bit more to get the three, three-eighths inch Yeah, collar. I didn't quite get the three-eighths, yeah. perhaps. We're, we're getting close Clerics to three-eighths collar. now. Cleric's Carl collar going on. So. This beer emerged, uh, the beer that we're drinking now began life at around uh, the start of the, the 19th century as London Porter. So London mm-hmm. Porter was being brewed. Uh, of course, in London, and it finally came across the Irish Sea and landed in Dublin, uh, late late eighteenth century. And uh, Guinness started brewing it, like as West Indies Porter was the first thing they brewed. Mm-hmm. But they were brewing versions of London Porter uh, around the turn of the century, so around eighteen hundred. And London Porter at the time was this beer that was very strong. It was made with this really rough, gross uh, malt called uh, brown malt, which mm-hmm. was very acrid and smoky right and they would put it in these giant vats and let it age for a year or more and the bretonomyces the wild yeast would begin to work on all that nastiness and over time <laughs> turn it into what what became alcoholic sludge uh no <laughs> super refined uh, beer that people likened to sherry and amontillado uh-huh. mm-hmm. Uh, and it became the first super style of all it's, it's we're entering the industrial revolution. Yep. So you got shipping, you've got steam power, uh, and it became possible to send this stuff out on ships. For example, like across the Irish sea to, right. to Ireland. Uh, and, and it went, it went everywhere. The Baltics went to Germany where they made porters and they were called, they called it Porter at the time, not stout. Um, and they were strong porters. Uh, so the, the name, uh, as they began to diversify and make weaker ones, became Stout Porter, which is where the word Stout comes from. I'm going to trot through this old history because we need to get to Michael Ash, uh, which is <laughs> which is in which is in the 1950s. So we we're going to go through 150 years here really fast. So eventually, the beer kind of evolved over time. Uh, Guinness, the the brewery. If you ever go to the the brewery, uh, which you know if you go to Ireland, of course you will. It's the most popular tourist attraction in in the country. <laughs> As you approach the brewery, you, you go through all these gabled uh, buildings. Mm-hmm. It's kind of a weird scene uh, before you get to the storehouse. All of those buildings hold vats, giant wooden vats, just acres and acres of these things. Wow. And the brewery was putting up this strong porter uh, in these beers, which they later called stout. Um, and so for uh, the next 150 years, it was a barrel-aged beer. 
and they it, it did change a little bit in uh, about 20 years after they started brewing it. A man invented a dark malt, uh-huh. and the English kept on with their brown malt, but the Irish said, "Ooh, this is way better. This this dark roasted malt, this black patent I'm malt." I say that's black patent, right? Yeah. yeah. Uh, it will. It's not nearly as acrid and gross. So they shifted. So that's when that branch deviated. London Porter was still made with a brown ale, uh, brown malt. Uh, well, as whereas the Irish, and it wasn't just Guinness. There were other breweries. Uh, you're, you're in fact drinking. I gave you a, a Beamish uh, glass to drink that <laughs> yeah, out of. Yes. So they, <laughs> there are other... out of a Beamish glass. <laughs> Don't tell anyone. Don't tell anyone. Uh, so there were other breweries making the same kind of beer uh, as the Irish tradition developed. Um, and then in the like, 19, I'm going to say 1920s, at some point, um, Guinness had the idea of using uh, roasted barley unmalted roasted barley which is part of the the when we drink it there's that roastiness but it's a particular kind of roastiness mm, yeah. uh, and that comes from the roasted barley mm, okay. which has a really distinctive flavor that now is is uh is the characteristic flavor of our stout yeah. uh, ro- is that roasted barley better stop and have a drink uh so that's the kind of the long history. The interesting thing is it was mostly uh, a bottled product uh, as it was shipped outside of Ireland, uh-huh. except for in Ireland, they did this convoluted thing uh, to put it on draft. And it was called the high and low. And there's still actually a few videos online. If you, if you look, <laughs> uh, you can see the publicans. It kind of died out uh, by the end of the sixties, early seventies, the last of these uh this system was 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 dying out. There's still a few videos. Very interesting to watch. What they would do is they had young fresh beer, right. which they would pour into a, a glass uh, or a pitcher, and it was all foam. It was highly carbonated, like uh-huh. way over carbonated. Right. Then they would put it to the side of the bar and let it sit there yeah. until it turned into beer. Mm-hmm. And then they had the low. So that's the high. Right. Then they had the low, which is basically flat beer. Right. And this was, uh, I asked uh, Evelyn Coughlin, the archivist at Guinness, um, you know, which, which, which version of the beer were they doing this with? And she said the extra stout. So this is not mm. the foreign extra stout, which was an especially strong beer. Right. This is probably going to be a beer on 6%. Right. Uh, and, uh, or at least that's what it was sold in the United States. It was about 6% at the time. Um, maybe it was weaker there. I don't know. And then they would pour the still stuff, and they would blend them. Mm-hmm. And then the the uh, the the head would come from the the very foamy fresh stuff, and it would also give it a liveliness. Right. But the old stuff, the still stuff, would have all the character and the the richness and the that age quality. So it was up to the public and to was, sort of yeah mix the two at the proper proportions. Yeah, it's very much. It looks much more like a, a mixologist than a publican. Right. You know, it, it looks. Yeah, it's like he's making a mixing a drink. Um, and this is not well suited for mass consumption. No, I can imagine the brewer was not super <laughs> pleased about that. Yeah, you lose all control of the product that consumers well, drink. And it, and it was great in Ireland because they had you know this massive dominance in Ireland. Right. But Ireland's a small country, right. and in in the 1930s, Guinness decided let's open a brewery in London, Royal Park, Park Royal. So in this giant brewery, and they wanted to seize the the giant British market, ah. but they couldn't do it with this weird high low system. Right. And so they were selling bottled beer, bottled beer, bottled wait, beer. Wait, they opened a brewery or a pub? A brewery. A brewery. giant brewery. Called, really? Yeah. Oh, I don't think I ever knew this. Yeah. 
<laughs> Interesting. It was called Park Royal. Uh-huh. And actually, it's in Park Royal, which is a, a, a plot of land in London mm-hmm. that still exists. And I, it was like where botanical gardens were at some point or something. I don't know. All right. Fair enough. You're the Englishman, so you should tell me what that what Park Royal is. Yeah. I don't know what Park Royal is. Yes, that's what it was. Yeah. Okay. Uh, so, so they, they wanted to figure this out and they, they didn't know how to do it. Uh, and so they had an idea that they should try to put it in a keg somehow, but they never could figure it out. So that's the background. Right. Then you mentioned, uh, uh, at the start that, uh, the student tea thing, a really fascinating thing that Guinness Brewery was doing at the time is they were just hiring the smartest people they could find. Uh-huh. And they weren't necessarily even uh, brewers. Actually, most of them weren't brewers. And they brought them into the company and said, you know, figure stuff out, do stuff for us. It was a really kind of innovative and creative approach to hiring that you don't see in, in, in uh, companies today. Mm-hmm. And one of the guys they hired was this guy, Michael Ash, uh, who uh, in the 40s, went to Trinity College, Cambridge, uh, where he was awarded a triple first. Surely you know what that means mm-hmm. as a British guy, but for others who don't, uh, uh, it, it is some like, it, it's like three in three disciplines. He was yes. the, the first, he, he was the top student. Um, so basically he was like the, <laughs> the hottest recruit. He was, when, when Guinness hired him, he was actually teaching school, uh, but he was still a really young guy. Right. And they brought him to Guinness. They actually made him work as a brewer for a year and a half. They threw him into a brewery. So, and he said, he told me, uh, so he could get his hands dirty um, and learn the brewing process. But then they let him do whatever he wanted to do. And they put him on a few jobs. And one of the things he wanted to do was figure this, this question out. Like, how do I get draft Guinness into a keg so that it can be served around Great Britain? Particularly because he's sitting there in London and... There's there's a few pubs that serve it the high and low in the UK, but that's it. So he begins to work and work and work. Um, actually, before we go any further, <laughs> I, I should stop. I'm getting ahead of myself. I have this. So I have, I have uh, some audio. It's not amazing audio, uh, but it was taken. Well, on, it is amazing audio. It's just it is a am- little bit. It, yeah. The quality is not amazing. <laughs> yeah. The audio comes from that trip that Guinness uh, flew me out to uh, for in, in 2016 to meet Michael Ash. It was a commemoration of his life, and I can't remember if it was on an, on an anniversary or what. Uh, memory is already dimming on that. But in any case, they brought him to the brewery. It was the first time in decades he'd been to the brewery uh, to celebrate his life, and, and I got to meet him. And he died six weeks after that meeting. So the audio I have is really near the end of his life. Uh, but in this first clip, I've got three clips. Uh, he describes the the way the high and low was poured. So you heard me describe it. Now you can hear him describe it. It's uh, the, all these these are relatively short uh, clips. So let's listen to that, and then we uh, and then I'll pick up the story about what he did from there. All right, let's hear it. Then the barman would take a whole minute to serve one glass. When he got the, he had to get a, a low pressure cast over a period of time, then the higher pressure one, which was newer, okay. he had to mix them. That was his skill. They were very skilled, the Irish publicans, at doing it, but it took them a minute to get a glass. 
because Ireland was a monopoly of Guinness. So if you were going to drink beer, you drank Guinness. Yeah. It, and we, it's we couldn't match that in England. <laughs> that we were talking about earlier. Yeah. So it was a very complicated system and very onerous on, on the barman. On oh, it the was. And it wasn't always the same. Exactly. Every barman had his own. Exactly. Yes, yes. It was all very amusing. <laughs> it did sell beer in Ireland. Yeah, it did. Yeah, absolutely. Whereas in the UK, it would have been the proportion would have been more bottles rather oh, than. There was practically no draft in yeah. the UK. I was telling someone um, um, a few London pubs. Okay, so uh, I should say now uh, that we're back that the the female voice you heard was uh, Evelyn Coglin the archivist who was there. And so she, she threw in a few comments as well, but um, that was Michael Ash. So that was the, that was the thing he confronted and he was trying to figure this out. And in the brewery at the time, uh, there wasn't a lot of support for his project. It was considered too difficult to pull off. So he was kind of doing this on his own. He had a team (laughs) and he was working on it, but uh, nobody was supporting him. So he, uh, he, over over time, he decided that he would go with nitrogen, uh, which, you know, nitro pours in the beer industry. We all know nitro pours now. Right. Michael Ash was the guy who invented them. Uh, Wait, uh, can I just interject one thing, which is at the time, was draft beer all essentially just cask ale drawn from a beer engine? Or, I, I mean, in other words, had CO2 come along? In the United States, it had, but... Okay. Uh, in Britain, it was all it was still all cask. Keg okay. beer was not a not yet a thing. Keg beer wouldn't come on until like I think the seventies is when it started to really compete with cask. And was Guinness Stout not suitable for that type of presentation? Yeah. So the issue, it's a good question. The issue was they were trying to figure out how to how to get the character in uh-huh. a in in a a draft pour that they got out of the high and low. I see. Okay. And they couldn't, they couldn't do it with, with CO2. Okay. So they wanted to recreate what was happening with the high low thing. That's right. I get it. Okay. So having a flat cask real ale kind of presentation wasn't gonna. Yeah. Yeah. And the interesting thing, and, and I think this is a great opportunity for, to go to our second clip. Mm -hmm. Uh, The interesting thing about the Irish pouring system is it also didn't use uh, CO2. To, to dispense things. It actually used oxygen. Ah. So uh, <laughs> what you what loves. They had to get the still out, right? And they used yeah. oxygen. Yeah, yeah. And uh I think I, I assume that the high was the, the the carbonate stuff was probably like a cask system. Right. Um but in any case, uh you know, oxygen will destroy beer immediately. So yeah. they couldn't use oxygen, they couldn't use CO two and and uh Michael Ash dis- settled on uh, nitrogen as the solution. Mm. And I'll play this clip now where he describes settling on nitrogen. Excellent. Um, the problem was to sell draft Guinness in England because it sold in Ireland. Uh, but you know that in Ireland they did it by with an oxygen air. The, the pace was very quick. Uh, when you tried that in England, it didn't work because the pace was much slower. Well, much slower. Yeah. Um, we had no monopoly in England. Um, by the time it got to the drinker, it had a seatify because you know, with the air, uh, the air or any other product with a seatify, 
APSC to gas would be undrinkable. Right. So we had, we had to do something about that. Well, get rid of the oxygen, keep the nitrogen. And the nitrogen has bubbles. No one worked that out. That was due to the experience in Ireland with air. We knew that that would produce small bubbles. So we said subtract the oxygen. With nitrogen, it will still produce the small bubbles. So you'll get the best of both worlds. Yeah, so there you can hear uh, him describing the... The, the virtues he discovered in nitrogen, mm-hmm. uh, which, you know, as he pointed out, it's what we breathe, it's neutral, it's great, it all sounds great, except for a couple of things. <laughs> it's not so great for beer because it doesn't go into solution. Ah. So this is the big challenge. It, unlike uh, oxygen and nit- uh, CO2, which the beer will absorb yeah. and then release it. That's a really good point. <laughs> I never thought about that before. Once it's over, your Guinness has no longer any gas in suspension, does it? It well, I, I mean, I think I think what they there's actually a blend of nitrogen and CO two, ah, okay. which so there's a little, little bit. bit. Yeah, I'm trying to. It's dark, so it's hard to see whether there's any bubbles in there still. But but it does give it that that more English presentation. It's not right. super fizzy on the mouth. Right, right, right. Yeah, not fizzy at all. Uh, but it does have this gorgeous head. Mm-hmm. So you're getting that low and that's the, the low and the high, you know, is the, the, what they're shooting for. So let me just take you down a side street for a second, which is what do you think uh, the difference between CO2 and nitrogen in terms of the flavor of the beer uh, to the palate? I mean, yeah, I think it's less flavor and more sensation on the tongue. Just okay. what we were talking about. Yeah. With the, the uh, And this is one reason why the Brits uh, who loved Cascale objected to forced carbonation uh-huh. because it does that pinprick thing on the tongue right? as opposed to a more integrated natural sensation that you get from, from yeah. cask or that you, you get even, even on nitrogen. It's, you don't get that pinprick thing. It's creamier. It's smoother. Yeah. But other than the sort of the mouthfeel, do you think that nitrogen has a different effect on the flavor than uh, uh, carbon dioxide? I don't think so. Okay. It would be interesting to I, – yeah. I don't know. That's a good question. I mean, carbon dioxide does ha- contribute a little bit of acidity, a tiny amount, and mm. I don't know if it's perceptible to the human palate. Yeah. But, uh, yeah. When I think of – I mean, because you know there are pubs around town that will just put stuff on nitro mm-hmm. just for fun. And basically what I sense is just you get that really creamy uh, presentation, but the flavors are similar, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And if you ever have a chance to try two beers side-by-side, keg and and nitro, it's it's very – that are the same beers just put on different uh, dispense systems. It is very interesting to eliminate everything but texture and mouthfeel right? because then you see how – how much of an influence it has. It, it makes it taste different in one way, even though you can, when you're tasting it, you realize it doesn't taste any different, but that, that contributes to the, the overall perception, Yeah, which is why they were working so hard on, on this process for so long, because they didn't want to just throw it on uh, a ca- cask or, or do something on keg. So, uh, so he worked on this privately for a long time, and he actually had to work with engineers to work with a keg uh, to figure out how to get the nitrogen dispense into the beer so that it would do this thing that our widget just did, which is release the nitrogen so that it would, you know, carbonate the beer, nitrogenate the beer, uh, and create the creamy head, but not just off gas immediately. And to, it's the other the other underappreciated thing 
that he had to do here is he had to make a beer that did not have a bunch of wild yeast in it. Mm-hmm. So they changed the formulation of the beer when they did this too. It had to be an inert beer, like uh, a keg beer. Right, 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 right. Uh, which they don't really talk about so much. <laughs> <laughs> but it was it was the moment that the beer went from being a a vat aged beer yeah. to being a not vat aged beer. So uh, you mentioned that the St. James's Gate Brewery in Dublin is acres and acres of vats. So what are they doing now? There, the vats are still there, but there's no beer in there. Ah, uh, okay. And it, and it, <laughs> when I visited it and I got to see some of the vats, it broke my heart. And I uh, talked to Stephen Kilcullen, the, the 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 current master brewer there, and said, "Dude, why aren't you filling this with something? Yeah, like exactly. it seems like people would pay a lot of money to have old, you know, old school Guinness out of one of these vats, right, just right. like one vat. Yeah, I would pay a lot of money for that, but so far it hasn't. You a whole party guy, all kind of." Yeah. series of English ale. Well, you wouldn't want Irish ales. <laughs> yeah, you could do, I mean, but you could do basically the same thing from different eras, epochs in the history. Mm-hmm. Uh, Evelyn has all of the the histories. They, they, they don't have about the first 30 years. They weren't even making dark beers then. They were right. making uh, yeah. Irish ale. But they have everything from about 1890, uh, 1797 on. So they have all the records. So they could, they could make these, they have an amazing portfolio. They have much of the uh, they have all the wild yeasts and bacterias that were in those uh, things preserved and have this giant library of microbes. I mean, it's just – it hurts my heart to think of what a playground they're not using. So, guys, I, I have a hunch that somebody from Guinness will listen to this. Uh, <laughs> that's my recommendation. Uh, put one of those vats. Find a good vat. They must have thought of this, though. It's going to take a long time to have it. The bean counters penciled this out, Jeff, and said, no way. Sometimes the bean counters are wrong. That's right. I you just want to say, yeah, you just got to follow, you gotta follow a, your heart. You got to have a vision. You know what? You know what the bean counters didn't anticipate? The bean counters would have said, "Don't hire Michael Ash. What is a mathematician going to do for us? He didn't right. know anything about beer." Right. Well, it turns out he 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 gave the the beer I'm holding in my hand, and it turned out to be a pretty important pretty, economic, pretty economic decision. Yeah, it wasn't so bad for the brewery. To That's <laughs> Guinness draft, huh? It wasn't a direct path, but it was a. It was. Uh, it led to something very good. Uh, all right. Can I can I interject for a second because I, yeah. I can't let the podcast go by without talking about the students' tea distribution. Uh, yeah. So this is this, it's, a per, it's a perfect time because that's another thing that came out of this year. That's why I thought it was pretty good because speaking of bean counters and and very smart people working for the brewery. Uh, so I'm gonna I'm I'm I'm, I'm going to cheat and use the Wikipedia here, but basically. Uh, the T-distribution existed. The T-distribution is kind of like a normal distribution. Think about a, a bell curve with slightly thicker tails. So it assumes that the, that the de- data generating process is symmetric, but uh, there's um, slightly more uh, data generated farther away from the mean. Anyway, long story short, student's T-distribution is something that every student who's had a statistics ca- class, econometrics class in the United States has encountered for sure, because there's a student's T-test that you've uh, invariably done or <laughs> inevitably you're going to be asked to do a student's t-test yeah it's like the it's 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 a it's it's the door you walk through it's super basic like first right. first year stuff and most people never understand where it comes from and they think the student's t-test something about like testing students and it actually has nothing to do with that there is a guy who was employed at the guinness brewery his name was william seeley gossett and in 1908 he published a paper in biometrica and he used the pseudonym student and there's a little debate about why he had to use a pseudonym. Some say that Guinness insisted upon it because they didn't want people to know that they were using this in the brewery. Uh, and some was just that 
you were supposed to use a pseudonym to if you were publishing a scientific paper. Anyway, he did it because he was interested in uh, the kinds of data that was being generated by the brewery itself, and they were generally smaller samples. And Wikipedia says, for example, the chemical properties of barley, where the sample sizes might be as few as three. I don't know about that, but anyway. Uh, based on his work, he was using this. And so he published a paper and used a pseudonym because he was an employee of Guinness Brewery at the time. And ever since, uh, at least in the English language version, it's the student's tea distribution. So there you go. It all comes from the Guinness Brewery. It comes from the process of making beer. Yeah. And it's in every standard uh, stats and econometrics textbooks in the U.S. So, so this is two ways in which the Guinness Brewery massively affected culture and learning uh, in ways that weren't related to beer in a certain sense. I mean, nitrogenation did affect beer, but it was this whole yeah. kind of like other scientific pursuit that, you know, a mathematician engaged. Yeah. And the other thing is you can disabuse me of this notion, but my sense is that Guinness was one of the first breweries that was going really big. And so they had a bunch of data that they had to make sense of. Like Absolutely. they were starting to have to sort of normalize these things that might've been more just kind of uh, rules of thumb and uh, really get down to what was working and wasn't working in the brewery because, you know, it made a lot of difference in terms of profits. It's a huge deal, and it's actually a, a very astute point you make. And it's still the case that in most breweries, uh, data – most breweries mm -hmm. are bound about the way they do the thing in the brewery. Right. They're not data-driven. They're, they're – uh, it's a it, – the, the process of brewing beer, uh, le less selling, but certainly brewing beer, is it's really – it's an apprentice system. Right. You learn from the, the master and he teaches you – mostly he teaches you how to make beer and then that's how you make the beer. And, and whatever process they use in the brewery becomes kind of like gospel. So culturally, having a data approach would have been wildly, uh, you know – dangerous or outre, uh, right, you know, right, right. people would not have wanted to see data. It's like, we know how we, we, we know how we're doing this, then this is how it should be done. So it was, uh, it was, it, yeah, it, it was very daring. And I think, uh, you know, now, now breweries are much more open to that, but, uh, yeah, it was, it was definitely really cutting edge stuff. Yeah. Um, what was I going to say? Uh, I imagine that it's kind of like the the reaction people to have to macro brewers, you know, mm -hmm. fans of craft beer to have a macro brewers that became so um, um, I don't know rational how they how they rationalized the whole process of beer so much that they took the the romance out of it. Yeah. So I suppose that one thing that you'd worry, I suppose, if you were Guinness. Yeah, and it and it really happened when they released this beer, which did not have the wild yeast in it, uh, and it was a ma it was a really big reformulation show all over Europe, all over uh, Ireland, especially. There were a bunch of duffers, and there's still a few of them around. There's still a few people alive <laughs> who remember when this shift happened. Yeah. Uh, they uh, it was greeted with ambivalence. Let's say that mm -hmm. <laughs> because right. the beer really changed in order right. to make this dispense system possible. Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, so it was, it was a massive change. It was clearly the right decision to make for the brewery. Uh, but it meant that there were no, you know, all those vats got drained eventually. Um, they continued to make, uh, for an extra stout. I don't know how long, uh, those vats stayed in use. Um, some, some decades after this shift, because this was just the draft and they were making stronger, uh, vat age beer that they were still putting in bottles and sending out. But yeah, it was, a, it was a definitely a big change. And, uh, I think companies in general, you might know something about this, but are, are probably generally change resistant. 
like culture does not usually lead to change. Yeah. Yeah. No, I think that's the famous, the famous example of so many failed <laughs> businesses that they failed to change quickly enough. Yeah. Uh, you know, I don't know, like, like a Kodak, for example, they still exist, but right. Shadow of the former South. Yeah. Yeah. That was a big one. Just to kind of finish up this story we're we're, we're really near the end. Um, but as Ash was producing this, uh, they were, they were even in the brewery, Speaking of uh, being resistant to change, yeah. they were calling it Daft Guinness instead of Draft Guinness, <laughs> uh, and the Ash Can his 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 dispense systems they were calling the Ash Can. Uh-huh. So he was really being ridiculed as this kind of eccentric who was you know going down this road and Ruining it had been the product. Yeah, and it had been twenty years that they'd been trying to figure this out, and the, most people in the brewery were just giving it up, and they're like, "Well, we have this weird mathematician, and he's off doing his weird thing with his team, and yeah. it's ridiculous." Well, uh, in the 1950s, we're approaching – the brewery was founded in 1759. We're approaching the 200th anniversary, and the brewery realizes Ash is getting close to something here. If we could get this thing done in time to roll it out for the 200th anniversary, that would be really cool. And they finally start, finally started putting some support behind him. Right. Uh, and then he worked with a, uh, an in, a local engineer to come up with a uh, – basically the widget that we just poured out, they had to figure out technology to do that within the uh, dispense system. And he figured out a keg to do that. And um, we're talking 1950s, the fifties. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. It was really high tech stuff. I mean, (laughs) this guy is, you know, he was a triple first at Cambridge. He's yeah. one of the smartest guys in, in, you know, in the British Isles. He's like, <laughs> and that's probably another reason why people, uh, called it Daft Guinness. Visionaries are usually not understood by but what they're doing is not crockable to the rest of the, you know, the rest of the people. So, right. uh, but he, but he persevered and he got through it. And I'm going <laughs> to, this, this next clip is just, it's kind of amusing because he describes the, the mechanism that he developed, the, the, the ash can. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I don't understand it at all, but it's really, <laughs> it's really funny to listen to him describe the, the valves and compartments and all that. Uh, so I'll play that and then we can kind of wrap it up because, um, that's, that's mainly the story of this beer is, is it was, it was, there was this other beer for 150 years and then Michael Ash came along and it became the beer we're, we're drinking here today. Right. So, okay, here's the clip and then we'll come back. The two parts where we had to, had to have a reducing valve, one part for the um, two gases, nitrogen and CO2, no oxygen, um, at a high pressure, reducing valve, and then the lower pressure above the beer. So as we drew off the beer, uh, if the, the gas would come through the reducing valve, and keeping a constant pressure of the two they mixed. So I don't, I don't know if you followed that, uh, but anyway, um, maybe, maybe, uh, engineers understood that. Okay. So I have a question that sort of brings us into the present day, which is we opened these cans that had little nitrogen widgets in it. Yeah. So of course that means that you couldn't just nitrogenate the beer and put it in a can and why not? Uh, for the same reason Ash had his, had his issue. You had to have a, you had to have to be able to deliver the nitrogen at dispense. At the moment, yeah. yeah. And and until they came up with the widget, which I think... So it wouldn't stay in solution. So if you just opened a can that had been pre-nitrogenated, 
the nitrogen would just gas off the moment you open the can and wouldn't be in the beer. It would either, yeah, or it might be actually like a pool at the bottom. I don't know. <laughs> I don't know what would happen, but it's like, anyway, it wouldn't work. It wouldn't work. <laughs> I'm not sure. Maybe somebody from Guinness can let us know because yeah. that's, that that's a really funny Send question. us a can, yeah. Send us a can that you've pre-nitrogen. <laughs> yeah. Actually, you know, if the widget fails, I suppose that's what happens. Who knows what, what you get when that happens. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Who knows? And and, and it was it was decades later that the widget came along. I right. It was in my lifetime. I remember when they released the widget. It's the eighties yes. or nineties. Yeah, yeah. No, I yeah. I remember this. Like the other British breweries too were into mm-hmm. like sticking a widget in your Bonding can. Sense. Exactly. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And so I remember getting those beers. They were very. They were kind of really trendy for a while. Yeah. <clears throat> so that that's nineteen fifty nine. Uh, it's the modern Guinness air quotes, uh, which has been around since 1959. There are not very many beers that have not changed since 1959 on the planet. They're probably in count them on, on, on your, the fingers of your hand. Maybe you have to bring your toes into it, but it's, (laughs) there's not very many. I mean, it's, it's, it's a, it's an amazing beer that it's been around unchanged this long. And, uh, quickly, because I know we're getting a little long now, but Guinness kind of went all around the world like you can travel all around developing world low-income countries and you see these old guinness advertisements so it really traveled i mean it it made it everywhere so why why was it so popular well it was an amazing beer i mean to go back to the flavor profile uh which i have not ever you know we're too young to have tried that bad age stuff right but but it was that good i mean london porter it is difficult to express what a type Titanic success this beer was. It, right. it encircled the globe, and then it was replaced by Irish port, uh, by uh, Irish stout. I mean, yeah. Irish stout became the the inheritor of that, mm-hmm. and it was the thing that went around the world. And um, it, what is really interesting to me is for an extra stout, which is the strong version of this beer. Right. It was the vat age version. You can still get the non wild versions of this. Is wildly popular in Africa mm-hmm. and the Caribbean which are really hot places. Right. So drinking a very thick 8% stout, yeah. you know, in, 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 uh, in Nigeria, right? which is where one of their, con- one yeah. of their, uh, breweries is, which I would love to visit. Uh, I'm slowly trying note, to, note to Guinness. Yeah. Slowly trying to figure out how that wasn't, that wasn't accidental. He <laughs> threw that in there. Guinness, how I can get Guinness to and fly me to way, Nigeria. By the way, you I should need, send I, me to, I, yeah, I, I need, I need a, uh, uh, like a, a helper. Isn't. I need a student. Yeah. I need a student. I know. Team. I know. I have to interpret the student teacher. <laughs> yeah, it would be amazing to go uh, see what's happening in Nigeria. Partly because I would love to see the culture of stout in Africa, which yeah. is it's a big culture there because this beer has been there for yeah. uh, maybe not centuries, but certainly decades, going back I think to the 19th century for sure. Yeah. Um, it, you know, it's, 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 it's embroidered into the, the, the fabric of Africa and it's amazing. Um, and I would love to see what it's like to drink an 8% beer in a, uh, tropical, uh, environment, you know, in a pub in a tropical environment. Yeah. Yeah. I know. It's always seemed crazy to me and the all advertisements are hilarious. Like it's good for you. Right. Guinness, it's good for you. Like there's this whole sort of healthy. Well, we could we could go on forever. I mean, that was uh, Gilroy was the advertising guy uh-huh. uh, who who came up with that. Although, oh, there was this famous British writer who wrote the copy. A woman. Ah, oh, my wife Sally loves her. I can't think of her name right now because I wasn't prepared for this. They worked together. They were. It is. It is basically uh, inarguable that 
that Guinness was the first brewery to really brand themselves mm. in a modern way using right. these Gilroy ads. Yeah. Uh, that, that radically changed the way firms thought about marketing and branding. Um, and we're talking about, I think that began in the 20s or 30s. So, right. you know, we're looking at almost 100 years of this. So Guinness, I mean, it, it it's a little bit hard to overstate the importance of the Guinness brewery. I mean, yeah. they really did a lot of stuff. Yeah, from a little island. Yeah, from a little island. Like, the same, like as many people as we have in Oregon or something. I mean, it's, right. it's like, yeah, it's amazing. Uh, excellent. Well, uh, thank you for taking us down this, this route. I, you've just finished, finished your goodness. I'm almost done. I mean, yeah, I managed to finish that while talking most of the time. So. And, and you're kind of sitting out there in the sun. I know the sun is the hot Oregon sun. is kind of a humid day. So now maybe you get the sense of why a good stout might be. Sun's coming around. Yeah. So far I'm not getting it. <laughs> <laughs> that beer is getting heavier and heavier. The hotter that sun gets. All right. So. Well, I hope one day we can uh, travel together to, to Nigeria. Is it in Lagos? The yeah, brewery? the brewery's in Lagos. In Lagos and uh, the Guinness Brewery. I about that. Uh, apparently, so one of the, the challenges, apparently it's a little bit dangerous and Guinness is not so, con- not, not, would not like to fly me uh, out there. We are I, very, we are very experienced travelers in I know. low-income countries and we know. I do feel like, I do feel like that. Yeah. So. All right. Well, we should probably turn to the mailbag. Yeah, we have a few, we have a few mailbags here. We do have a fairly bulging mailbag. So thank you all for your contributions. And the last two are, are going to require. Yeah, I'm going to leave, I'm going to leave those to you because you're going to have to paraphrase, I think. Well, maybe I'll do one. Uh, okay. The first one you have on here is anonymous. Is, yeah. that, is that your? Well, it's not anonymous. It was, it was one of the, it was, it came from Instagram and uh-huh. it was an account that had like, I, I can't remember the name. It was not, it was like pig farmer 13 or something like that. And there's, and I don't know what, sorry, pig farmer. Uh, I don't think it was pig farmer, but uh, there was no name associated with it. And I didn't. All right. Well, whoever you are and Jeff didn't include your uh, Instagram handle. So uh, listening to the pod, uh, uh, he or she writes, or they write, listening to the pod, a great French pills is made right here in Portland. Von Ebert's Pierre Le Chat. Le Chat. Which is super tasty. Great pod today. Thanks. So we were talking about the Alsatian pills, which is uh-huh. the newest pills variety. Alsace. Uh, which, yeah, uh, which I got all excited about and I would like to try it. Maybe some little Strissel Spalt and I don't know what else, but uh, but we'll have to go try the Pierre Le Chat. Pierre Le Chat. Uh, yeah, I've not tried it. And so, Jeff, what's a French pills? What would characterize, what would you be expecting? I don't, I don't, I don't actually know. I All mean, right. so wow. stump the chump there. Yeah, exactly. There's, you know, Strasbourg was traded back and forth between the Germans and the French forever. And, uh, yep. uh, there's Alsatian hops like Strissel Spalt, uh, mm-hmm. and others. Um, so I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. And of course, uh, some of the best grain on the world is grown in, in France. So it's, it's like all right? lined up. Oh, absolutely. Uh-huh. In fact, uh, especially wheat, mm-hmm. not surprisingly. Uh, I, I was told by certain Weizen uh, makers in Germany that they imported <gasps> their wheat from France <gasps> because oh. it's better quality than German. Sorry, Germany. And the barley is also very, of course, very good. So, yeah, right. we'll have to get her a try. Uh, next one. Do you want to do this one? Sure. So, uh, as, as you'll see, when I read this, this was a brewer who sent, who sent this and kind of didn't want me to out. Fair enough. Um, we, we, we're, we're down with that. Yeah. Uh, and the reason is because this brewer was, um, uh, 
thinking about the boneyard sale. So explain boneyard. Boneyard brewery. was purchased. Uh, Deschutes Brewery purchased Boneyard right. a couple months back, a few gotcha. months back. Um, so this this brewer at, uh, poses these questions. It's certainly not the first case of a craft brewery buying another, but it seems unique in the way they are conspicuous, cons- consciously hiding the fact. I looked at a new box six pack of RPM yesterday, and it has the BA Independent Craft logo prominently display, displayed and says Boneyard Beer Bend, Oregon. Deschutes may be independent craft, but Boneyard is now just a brand the same as Michelob. In fact, I've heard from very reliable sources inside that they uh, transition all the Boneyard brands to Deschutes, Deschutes plants where they will be closing the brewery entirely. Workers from Boneyard were given the opportunities to interview for packaging positions at Deschutes, but many have no desire to work for them. In Central Oregon, uh, this buyout is already having way more effect than 10 Barrel, which was uh, Ben Brewery purchased by Anheuser-Busch. Right. Why are the same critics who lambasted uh, 10 Barrel mm. as sellouts now championing the wider availability of Boneyard cans? Anyway, hmm. just curious about your thoughts. That is interesting. I mean, yeah, I, I think there's a lot going on here. I will say that the Brewers Association that this brewer references uh, and the independent logo, they have super bizarre criteria, and this has happened before. So Dogfish Head got purchased by uh, Boston Beer, and they're considered independent craft. Right. And Duval, the uh, – mid-sized Belgian brewery purchased Firestone, Walker, Boulevard, and Omegong, and those three breweries get to uh, be called independent, even though Anheuser-Busch is partly Belgian-owned. So I, I have no idea what the criteria for what is called independent, but uh, this brewer is correct that Boneyard as a, as a brewery is likely to cease to exist before long and just be a brand. It is interesting. I mean, I don't, I think that they're arguing for rationality and I just don't think it's that rational, right? Like you can have an Anheuser-Busch who buys a brewery like 10 barrel and says, okay, here's a bunch of money, go do your thing. Mm-hmm. Which is what they did apparently. Which is basically what they did. And so essentially they're still operating relatively independently. And then you can have a brewery like Deschutes, which is one of the sort of, you know, godfathers of craft, right? Uh, has a lot of cred, but then basically says, we're just going to subsume you and, and create a brand within our brewery. Um, uh, and basically Boneyard as an independent entity no longer exists, perhaps. I don't know the facts, so I don't, I don't want to state it as fact. But. Well, and, and and let's let's imagine that they do close that brewery. I think the point still stands whether that brewery is open or not. Yeah, and, and, and this is because we talked – uh, uh, last time, last pod, when we were talking about the best breweries in or in Portland and sort of how much it's a, brewer, a brewer-driven brewery, well, Boneyard is exactly that. I mean, this is the baby of <laughs> uh, Tony Lawrence. Uh, uh, Tony Lawrence, the brewer, and you know, in fact, the brewery itself is his sort of creation of cast-off parts and. And so that is like a big part of the identity. It's in the name. Yeah. It's part of what who he is. You know, he's a tinkerer and he threw together this brewery and, and managed to brew fantastic beer from it. So how much of that is part of the beer and how much is it just the recipe, which, of course, you could brew on any system with some tinkering, you know, to get the flavor out. But Yeah. And especially at Deschutes, which is yeah. makes crap. And then, anyway. you know, and I have two minds because I have a lot of respect for Deschutes and I think, you know, and I, and I wish them well and I know that they're struggling and and uh, um, it's probably, a you know, a nice out for Tony Lawrence. You know, it's been a tough year for the brewery that's been largely focused on draft. Yeah. So I understand the synergy there too, and I sort of uh, can 
uh, can understand it. But I think the point's well taken, right? Uh, like, I think that people don't dig too much and they just hear Anheuser-Busch and that's bad and they hear Deschutes and, okay, that's fine. And this is a competing brewery in Oregon who is now looking to have to compete against uh, a brand, a Deschutes brand called Boneyard yeah. in the marketplace where many customers are going to assume there's a brewery. And so this brewer is wondering, like, why am I, you know, the the Brewers Association is going to defend me against Anheuser-Busch owned 10 barrel, but not against uh, Deschutes owned uh, Boneyard. Yeah. And I'm a little brewery and, you know, what's the deal here? Yeah. I think, yeah, I think that's all valid. By the way, I'm just going to toot my own horn because a couple of years ago, well, two, three, four years ago, I can't remember last time when we were in Bend. And we, 30 years ago. 30 knows? years ago, we went to Bend and we talked to Gary Fish, <laughs> the president. What's his title? President? Yeah. CEO, Founder, for sure. Founder of Deschutes. Uh, and uh, we were talking, uh, and I posed this hypothetical question, like, if you're a brewery like Deschutes and you're going to open up a new brewery in Roanoke, Virginia, which they never did, right. uh, why would you open up a Deschutes brewery? Why not start a whole new brand? Right. You and I, I mean, you and I talked about that, and I thought you were a genius. <laughs> Thank you. I am a genius. That's, yeah. that's without question but whether this idea is a genius idea i'm not sure uh but it kind of strikes me as slightly similar like i can't you know deschutes brand is just struggling like whatever i put out no matter how fantastic it is the deschutes name just doesn't have that cachet anymore yeah boneyard still does right right why and maybe not? something new would you know so why not open cavalier brewing i just throw that out there yeah i yeah. don't know like if yeah. you're going to be in Roanoke. Yeah, I know. It's interesting. All right. Uh, third piece of mailbag is from Kevin McAvoy, which is a follow-up Jeff put under here. Yeah. When you start reading it, you'll remember. <laughs> okay. Maybe. Uh, here we go. I realize it's just sort of a stream of consciousness conversation you guys had there with my email as launchpad, but I wanted to follow up where you guys ended up specifically talking about India, Brazil, and Portland. You both pointed out the diversity of those two countries, but my point wasn't really to say that the U.S. is the only country with a variety of tastes and styles, more that as a whole nation, we might be unique in desiring to experience things from outside our local bubbles. I could be wrong, but I would guess that the average North Indian person doesn't eat much other than North Indian food. From my experience in Brazil, that is true. People from the North tend to stick with their regional dishes, uh, and they're not really eating much of that Japanese-Italian immigrant food that Patrick referenced, which is concentrated in the South. China is hugely diverse, but in Beijing, mostly resident Chinese. Uh, restaurants look similar to one another, but totally different from those in Yunnan or Hongshao. Doing my best there. Yeah. Finally, you mentioned that Thai is being sort of an adopted cuisine of the city, but I wonder how much of the non-white or non-Thai folks are eating that food. Of course, you know better than I, but I guess the majority of immigrants' populations are sticking to their own cultural wheelhouses. Thoughts? Yeah, this was a comment about how the now, United, yeah, now I remember yeah to, about to how many up. Americans are unique in their desire for diversity. Exactly that. Well, that was the, that was the question that Kevin originally posed. Uh, and I think I mentioned. I think my take, uh, but I don't remember exactly. But now it's my take. So yes. this is what pops into my mind now is that there's sort of the new world, old world thing. And so I was talking about Brazil being a little bit more new world, and how like there's Italian communities and Japanese communities there. Uh, but uh, Kevin has experience in Brazil and finds, and it's true that there is a lot of tradition, like you find feijoada everywhere. Like there's certain foods you'll just find no matter what, like they'll always serve it, beans and rice in Brazil. Uh, and that's not true in the U.S. There isn't like one food you always have. I don't know. There's the classic American like restaurant that's just American food, you know, you get your your chicken fried steak. and yeah, <laughs> I don't know what, you're, like what? But I don't, but I take his point. Like, it's not as ubiquitous as like the Brazilian feijoada or, you know, I don't know, the, the lentil curry doll. 
the doll. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Patrick, I, can't, I can't say that with a treat face. Patrick's not a fan of the doll. Well, uh, Jeff and I ate a lot of very poor doll. Let yeah. me just put it that way. Yeah. That's very, true. very, very watery, tasteless. And there are many doll. different dolls. And we're talking about the yellow doll, the which yellow has a doll. name, but I can't remember oh, what it's God. called. Uh, Jeff and I spent a long time in India eating a lot of doll. Probably over a year in total, right? <laughs> well, you more. Uh, yeah, I went back for so, another bite of the apple. <laughs> so I do, yeah, I, I do think that. Uh, uh, the United States, because it became such a magnet uh, for immigrants all over the world, has become this this country sort of unanchored by a unified, at least, cu- cuisine. Yeah, I, I was thinking about Kevin's uh, comments, and I was thinking it's really – it's very complex. So you're dealing with a bunch of different things. The, the India thing really reminded me of, of a point, uh, which is – Wealth really has a lot to do with it. India, in, 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 let's say you're in Delhi, you can definitely find South Indian doses there. You can find uh, uh, Punjabi food. You can mm-hmm. find it's an immigrant town within India. Yeah, uh, Kashmiri food, a lot of lot of Kashmiri food. Actually, Kashmiri food is really popular everywhere you go, like tandoors and all that. Yes, yeah, uh, really popular food. Um, but it, if you're quite poor, if you're a villager uh, living, I remember there was a time that that when we were there, you and I and our, our two friends, Eric, Eric and Eric, uh, went to this. We were in this really small town, which we biked out to, and they served us uh, a meal on on a banana. Yep, uh, banana leaf. Banana leaf. Yep. This is, and it was like a rupee. It was really cheap. Uh, it was. It was three rupees. Three which rupees. at that time was 25 rupees per dollar. There you go. So three rupees. And the thing is, it was it was served to people who did not have the kind of money where they were going to the Tandoor restaurant in Mysore mm-hmm. nearby, which is where we were staying. Yeah. So, and that's actually true in the United States too. You know, a lot of a lot of the cuisine that's available for wealthier people is not actually widely shared among uh, people of lesser means. So I don't know. There's that whole thing. <laughs> Um, it's it becomes very complex. You you have the immigrant country versus the the uh, uh, you know the, we have the new world old world thing. Um, it, it's true. Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, I'm not sure. Like uh, I was just sitting here thinking, like I'm not sure how it is that Brazil sort of developed its fairly strong national identity in a way that is different. I, I, I take his point. It is different than the United States. Culture is weird that way. Yeah, I mean, I think it's the sense that it's not as big a country. You know, Brazil is still, it's grown a lot, but but especially early on, it was a much smaller country than the United States. Um, I mean, population-wise and and so on. Uh, and so I suppose you, you, you can develop these national tra- traditions easier when there's a smaller population you all sort of buy in. The United States, I think, from from very early on was was diverse and, and separated and, and bi-coastal. And, and so, it, you know, we do have regional cuisines mm-hmm. that you'll find. But yeah, I do think we're... Uh, we don't have that that strong national identity in terms of our food and drink, and perhaps that makes us much more um, adventurous. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Maybe so. I think the original thing was one of us, probably you, said. Uh, it was smart it was me. It was stupid. It was you. It was well. It was controversial. It's what set Kevin off. Uh, I think it was actually probably me. Uh, that Amer- that that humans like choice and diversity. Uh. And yeah. that's what that's what set off this now ongoing discussion. 
So the question is, do humans actually like diversity or do they like familiarity? And I think, uh, I don't know that it's an easy question to answer. Well, I, yeah, I mean, it's always going to be a tension, but I still would say that given a choice, the villager in India, if they didn't have to have the tali every meal, if they had other choices, they probably would choose some variety. Like one day they would have this, another day would have that. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Money does play into that whole thing. And yeah, it's, you know, once you expand your choice set, wealth expands your choice set and allows you to be more. Uh, and that's, I think, something we've talked about. Like one of the reasons why craft beer is so big in the United States is because we're a wealthy country and people are willing to pay $8 for a glass of beer. Right. That's good and tasty and different. Right. Right. And that's a luxury that we have. And that's sort of a luxury of choice. And, you know, so. Okay. Uh, well, thank you, uh, uh, anonymous person on Instagram whose handle Jeff didn't write down. Uh, anonymous brewer in Oregon who's, who's, uh, who wrote in. And then Kevin McAvoy. Yeah. Uh, but anyway, thank you everyone for writing. We really do appreciate your questions, comments, and suggestions. Yeah, and keep them coming. I, we, I, I personally, I can't speak for Patrick, really like these philosophical questions like Kevin posed. Uh, not that you have to confine yourselves to them, but they're really interesting. So if we say something that sets you off, please let us know whether you agree with or disagree with it. It's interesting stuff. Yeah, indeed. All right. A few words going out. Please subscribe to us on Apple, SoundCloud, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. And don't forget to rate us. Five stars, please. That helps other listeners find the show. We'd love to hear from you. So please send your questions and comments to Jeff at BeerVanaBlog.com or on Twitter at BeerVanaPod. And now we also have an Instagram uh, that's also BeerVanaPod. Right. Beervana Pod is uh, good. It's the way, way to go. You can't go wrong typing in Beervana Pod. That's right. I'm really glad that you chose that. <laughs> Patrick was the one who set up the new Instagram. And, and I don't even know how to use Instagram. Uh, so that's a challenge. Yeah. All right. <laughs> but so I do know that all my, all my sons, sons and their friends uh, do the Instagram and they don't do the Twitter. So we're trying to skew young here. So hi, youngsters. <laughs> yeah. Listen to a couple of old guys talk about beer. That's so, so just saying, if you're not 21, don't drink the beers, youngsters. Oh, okay, yes, that's exactly right. <laughs> Remember, drink responsibly, 21 and older. Uh, unless you're in Europe. Then really go nuts. Like, do whatever you want, man. Yeah. Come on. Uh, Jeff blogs at the Beervana blog, and he tweets at Beervana. And Patrick tweets at Beeronomics. All right. Oh, man, we both finished our beer. But we'll cheers with empty glasses because... I, well, I actually have, a little I have phone. some drags. Yeah, we have yeah. some drags. I have some drags. We'll get a cheer. All right. Cheers, Salancha. Ah, Salancha. Bye.